Um, we're going to continue in Psalms, so if you have your Bible, Psalm chapter 38 is where we're going to be this evening. Give everybody time to get eyes on the page. All right, well, let's read it together, and then we'll begin to just walk through this passage. Psalm chapter 38, starting in verse 1, says this, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden they are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate all the day. I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs, my strength fails me. In the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off. Those who seek my life lay their, lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery, treachery all day long. But I am like a deaf man. I do not hear like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth are no rebukes. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me who boast against me when my foot slips. For I am ready to fall and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity, I am sorry for my sin, but my foes are vigorous, they are mighty, and many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, uh, we thank you for the privilege we have to come and to open your word, Lord, to hear um, the heartbeat of your servant David. Lord, we're so thankful for the Psalms and the way that you kind of, uh, through them, just display the emotions and the heart behind our lives as believers. And so, Father, as we approach your word this evening, Lord, we're going to talk about some difficult things. And my prayer is that you would guide us into all truth, that you would protect us from erring anywhere. And God, that above all, Christ would be honored and made much of. Uh, it is in the name of Christ and through his blood we pray. Amen. Interesting Psalm, isn't it? I mean, reading through it the first time, you're just, you hear things that you don't normally hear, things like, my wounds stink and fester. Um, and it does, from, like, it's a little bit of a disgust thing. I mean, I, I, you read it the first time, and you almost are just like, oh, that's a little gross, um, or a lot gross. Uh, but so what we're looking at this evening is something that perhaps we don't like to discuss too much, discipline. Um, as, a, as a child, I was very heavily disciplined, and I needed to be, um, because I constantly made errors, and I constantly uh, rebelled against my parents. And so just like, um, just like my father, um, God is a God who disciplines his children. And uh, so what we're going to look at this evening is a picture of David being disciplined. Um, and, and when we think about David, very rarely do we think about any sin that he has, aside from the sin that you see very clearly in Bathsheba, and then also him sending Uriah to die. I mean, those are the first things we think about when we consider David sinning. And for some reason, those are about the only times we consider David ever sinned. That's not the case, though, is it? David was a man just like you and I. David uh, had his major issues. David very likely went through spells of some idolatry and rebellion against God. And what we're going to look at here is how God disciplined David 
and, and how David responds to that. But before we dive into that, I, there's a couple things I want to point out before we look directly at the text. First of all, have you ever considered that discipline is the most clear indicator of parenthood? I mean, so recently, uh, I actually just got back from Colorado. My family and I went skiing. It was a great time. But my three-year-old nephew went, and that was the first for me. Um, and uh, actually, my wife wasn't able to go, so I was able to share a bedroom with my three-year-old nephew. It was a blessing. Um, at 3 a.m., but 1 a.m., at 3 a.m. and 5 a.m., every night, I would wake up to him screaming for his mother. The first time I tried to console him, after that, I just knocked on her door and woke her up because... It's not my child. Um, and so one of the things I noticed was it, when, when all was going well, his name's Camden, with him. I mean, I'd be playing with him, wrestling with him. He's three years old. I mean, he just wants to be thrown around and wrestle all the time. Um, he eventually beat me just surely by fatigue. And, um, but there was a moment that I was wrestling with him, and he got, a little, uh, he got a little aggressive and threw a shot at my face. You know, three-year-olds. And immediately my thought was, uh, you need to go head to your dad because discipline's not my job. If you ever walk through Walmart or something like that and you see someone disciplining a child, your first thought's going to be, that's their kid, right? Rarely are you going to come across someone who's disciplining a child that it is not actually their child. It's the parent's responsibility. It's dad and mom's responsibility to discipline a child. In the exact same way, we as children of God can often be identified by the way that God disciplines us. And so let's look at this. Uh, there's a couple of things I want to lay down before we dive into this because we're going to talk about suffering for just a little bit. And, and there's some distinctions we have to make. First of all, I would tell you or argue that there are three major reasons that we suffer. First is for obedience. We'll go from good to bad. If we be in Christ and we're obedient to his call and command on our lives, there will be times of persecution and suffering. All of you are familiar with this. We talk about it. I mean, think about, I and mean, we have brothers and sisters around the world who are being put to the sword because of their faith in Christ, because they are being perfectly obedient and following after him. Their suffering is the result of a fallen world, and they are passionately pursuing a holy God in it, and that will be persecuted. So one of the reasons men suffer is because of obedience to Christ. Another reason men suffer is because of a consequence due to sin. When you sin, there are consequences. They may be small in your mind, but ultimately there are indeed consequences. I mean, if you look at really any sin throughout your life, just take it personally for just a minute, you can identify, I would argue, a consequence that is directly related to some sin that took place in your life. At bare minimum, I can. When we sin, there will be consequences. For instance, let's take uh, David here. David, when he sinned with Bathsheba, a child was born and that child perished. That was a consequence of that sin. Far past that, I mean, there are many other consequences, things ultimately like David not being able to build the temple because blood was on his hands. And there are consequences for our sin. Lastly, that oftentimes we suffer due to God's discipline of us. Now, let me make a distinction. Only those who are believers in Christ will suffer due to God's discipline. Now, that's something that many people might not like, but ultimately that's a blessing. Um, for those of you who have children, you discipline them, and when you do, you say things like, this hurts me more than it hurts you, your child disagrees, um, and you say things like, I do this because I love you. I will never forget the first time my mother told me that, and I looked at her, and I said, that's a twisted love, and then I got another spanking. And um, 
I mean, you know, but why, why, does, why do parents discipline? They do it because they don't want you to repeat the same things over and over again and ultimately continue to harm yourself throughout your life by doing things that just simply aren't meant to be done. And so what we have here as we look at Psalm chapter 38 is a perfect example of what we find in Hebrews chapter 12. So in Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 7, I want you to identify that. If you could turn there, I just want you to have your hand on it um, because we're going to look at that or consider it really throughout the remainder of the evening. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7, says this. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. I'm trying not to preach on this text, but I have to point this out. Listen to that language. If you have not participated in discipline, you are illegitimate children and not sons. Just pointing that out as we look at this, as we consider our own lives and being disciplined by the Lord, man, we should be, it should be a moment when we feel that discipline. We say, man, praise God because it's confirmed that I am actually a child of God. So continuing in verse 9, it says this, Besides this, we have, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. So this is the purposes of discipline. That we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So as we look at this, what I want to have in the back of our minds is the purposes that God has for discipline. It's not just to come in randomly and cause you some strife and harm. Ultimately, God's purpose of discipline is to grow you in holiness and to to work in whatever situation it is to conform you into the image of Jesus. And look, I I realize that every time I've gotten up here, it's had something to do with sanctification. That's just the way that the text has fallen. And I rejoice in it because I love the doctrine of sanctification. And ultimately, I think it's one of the most forgotten and undertaught doctrines that exist. We forget that the purpose of our lives is to look like Jesus. And the beautiful thing that we have in Christ is that he will make sure it comes to completion when he returns. And so let's dive into Psalm chapter 38 and look at our dear brother and uh, former King David and uh, examine some of the things that took place in his life. So starting in verse one, we see David's request. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. The first thing we encounter, quit. I love this. I mean, I think this is so clear. And I love the fact that David in his Psalms does not ever hide who he is. I mean, you can imagine, and really, I think we've all been here where the Lord brings some discipline in our lives and our very first response is, hey man, stop. No one really enjoys being disciplined. It's not something that we're like going after and looking for. I mean, when it, when it comes, oftentimes it's very difficult. It's very hard. And so when discipline comes, David's immediate response is, can you please stop? And we would never consider David would be the one to say this, would we? I mean, we, we lift David up on a pedestal as we should, man. He was a great follower and, uh, and seeker of God, and he was a great king. But friends, he was a real guy. And just like us, when discipline comes and we've sinned and rebelled against God, his first response is, can you please quit? And what I want to point out about this, and this, this is the reason I wanted to really look at this for just a moment, is the fact that when, when it comes, oftentimes our first response is, leave me alone. Leave me alone. 
And what I want to make clear is sanctification is not an easy process. It's not meant to be something that's kind of lackadaisical. You're just going to go through your life and the Lord's going to come in and maybe poke you a little bit and say, you should probably start looking a little more like my son. Instead, he's going to cause some difficult situations in our life, perhaps even some suffering, so that the end result that he desires, ultimately his glory and your good will be brought about in your life. And it may be difficult, difficult even to the point where one like David saying, stop it, stop. It's not necessarily going to be an easy trek. But let's look at the reason that David is requesting the Lord to please quit doing this. Listen to verse 2. For your arrows have sunk into me and your hand has come down on me. Does that not sound incredibly painful? Your arrows have sunk into me. And when I think about the hand of God weighing down on a heart, do you think that's a light weight? So David's thought is, please quit. Your arrows are in me. I understand like you're coming against me. Your hand has come down on me. Listen to this. There's no soundness in my flesh, meaning there is no strength or integrity in my flesh because of your indignation. So you see God's anger and frustration arise. Whenever I think about indignation, I almost think of like fire blasting from someone's nostrils. Like, I mean, just deep anger and frustration. And what I want you to see from this is sin is not something that God takes lightly. When you look at King David, one that God calls a man after his own heart and God is weighing him down because of his sin, he is not giving David a free pass because he looks good in his culture. He's saying, you've sinned, you've fallen short, and ultimately there must be some weight placed on you for you to do what I've called you to do. And listen to what all this, come, all this pain and difficulty that David's going through in his life, all is a result of this. Look at verse 3. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. David's suffering that he is going through is being brought about by God's discipline. So what we're looking at this evening is just that. We're looking at God's discipline in the believer's life. And and, and what's interesting about this is David's fully aware of the reasoning that God has come against him. He's not coming like, I don't know why this is happening. I think oftentimes we do that. Sin has, we have, we have just rebelled against God and something difficult occurs in our life. And perhaps it's something difficult directly related to what we have been doing to rebel against God. And we come, we, we, we approach him like, Lord, I don't know why this is happening. I'm the best. We know better. We know better. And I think we, we, we could take a, a, a play from David's book, so to say, and and be up front and say, Lord, I know who I am. I know that I'm desperately wicked. I know that, that in every area of my life, I'm having to wage war against my flesh. I know that there's sin here. And, and, and I know that sometimes you're going to come against me so that you can purge that out of me. And so David brings this to the Lord. And his first thing is, Lord, I want you to, I want you to stop. I know what I've done. I've sinned. I've rebelled against you. And you're, you're causing me such strife and pain. You're disciplining me. I see that. And he pleads with him, please stop. But then he continues and he says this, For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I want you to notice three things that we see here David blames ultimately on the situation that's occurring. He names three. He names his sin, which is ultimately missing the mark, not achieving what God has called him to. You see iniquity. Iniquity is something where we twist what is good and make it evil. We are masters of this. I mean, you name it, we've, we have twisted it. 
I think of food probably as the number one that I consider. Because when we think about food and the fact that God gave it to us, I mean, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, it says, The Lord God calls every tree that was a delight to the eye and good for food to grow in the Garden of Eden. Wherever you look, God had created this beautiful environment for you to ultimately walk up to, take a piece of fruit or vegetable or what have you, and enjoy it. God always intended food to be good for us. Yet we have taken it and we twisted it and now we gorge ourselves on it and it has become one of our gods that we bow before. And so iniquity is taking the good things that God has given us and making it wicked and evil. And so when David's considering all the things that he's done, he says, because of my sin, my iniquity, and my foolishness. And when I look at this text, historically, no one really has put a certain moment in David's life where he wrote this. People had some ideas, all of which none of them ever gave any backup for. And ultimately, I think David penned this in just some sinning time of his life that was never really recorded. And honestly, as I look at it, the first thing I think about here is idolatry. And I'm, and I'm, I'm taking a jump here. Let me be first to tell you this is not something you can find in the Scriptures. It is simply something that I kind of look at and I can, can, can kind of see. Not in the Bible, just my opinion. I think there might have been a moment of idolatry in David's life. And when I look at this, you see this, I've twisted something, I've made it evil, I've sinned, I've rebelled against you, and I have become a fool, and he's labeling this. And so what God is doing is ultimately coming in and yanking that away from him. He is causing him some physical strife. He has wounded him for a singular purpose of bringing him to repentance. But if you look at the language here, my wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I'm utterly bowed down and prostrate all the day I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult within my heart. This was not a quick blow either, was it? I mean, listen. I mean, once again, just a weird verse, but my wounds stink and fester. That's a blow that takes time, isn't it? Like, that's not something that happens instantly. It's something that God is using to remind him of what he's done. It's something that God is using to, to constantly hit him. Like, this is, you have done this. You've sinned. You've uh, committed iniquity. You have been foolish. And God has given him a blow. And, and that one is, it is festering in not only his body, but in his mind. He's mourning. I mean, it has absolutely just enraptured every part of who he is. And here's, here's the question. Do you think as every time that side burned or even maybe he uh, smelled the, the stench from his wound, he thought about his sin and rebellion against God? I mean, I have to say there was a moment when I was in ninth grade, we had a, a technology class and there was a, a laser that you weren't supposed to play with. I did. Um, and uh, I was sent to the principal's office and I was given two, two licks ultimately. And I remember walking back to the class, and I'm, and I'm you, know, you know, the joke, I'm going to spank you so hard you can't sit down. This principle succeeded. And, uh, and I went to sit down in my chair, and the second I did, I popped up instantly. Because, man, I, mean, I just, pain struck me again. And I think ultimately what God is doing here is the exact same thing that I felt that day. I remembered, I'm not touching that laser again. I'm not going to do it. In the exact same way, I think what, what God has done to David has wounded him in a way that when he considers perhaps going back to whatever sin that God has ripped away from him, he's, he, he feels the side burning or he smells the stench of that wound. And so God has been very, very harsh to David because he is dealing with something that is harsh. And so let me take a brief pause here because I think it's necessary that perhaps some of you think, man, how harsh is God being with him? 
And if you're, ask, if you're asking that question and you're considering that, it's probably because we don't have a high enough view of sin. We really do not consider that it is as wicked as it actually is. I don't think when we think about sin and its ultimate rebellion against God that we ever really think to ourselves, man, this is an offense to God and it is worthy of eternal hell. I mean, we laugh at sin. You get that? I mean, when you turn on the TV, how often do we hear a joke that is wildly inappropriate and we giggle at it? You see, it's easy for us to look at this and perhaps say, man, God's being very, very harsh. But ultimately, the reason we do that is because we don't really believe sin's worthy of condemnation in hell, do we? We don't really believe it's eternally offensive to God. Friends, if we had any, just an inkling of the true hatred that God has of sin and the offense that it is to his holiness, then we would treat it very, very differently. And we would look at a passage like this where God is willing to wound a servant of his due to it. And we would say, man, how easy he got off. How kind was God? How gracious was he to simply wound him that he might be brought to repentance? But so one way that God would discipline us is by giving a physical blow. Secondly, we see this starting in verse 9. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs, my strength fails. In the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. My friends and and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off. This is is an interesting thing. I I would wonder, actually, as David is used to having courts filled, uh, people that he loved, he'd have family and friends and people that were his servants. I think of perhaps David's mighty men of valor. He had 50 that would surround him at all times. And I wonder how close they were during this time where God struck his servant. Because what you see here is ultimately they began to kind of separate themselves from him. They kind of wandered away from David because they saw God was dealing with him. And you'll notice these things. When someone is dealt a blow, oftentimes what happens is people retreat from them. And so what God is doing here, I think, is making a point to David saying, look, if you're going to sin and rebel against me, there's going to be some things, some consequences, and ultimately me disciplining you. And what's going to happen probably is those people that have drawn very, very close to you will begin to wander away. And he does something to David that I think is incredibly difficult for this king that was usually surrounded by people who loved and admired him. Can you imagine being King David in Israel? When he came back in after slaying Goliath, they say, Saul has slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands. Do you ever think there was a man in Israel so admired as David? No. I mean, David, you can imagine being, I mean, couldn't go anywhere. It's King David. People would surround him. And here you have one, he, because of his rebellion and sin, he's been dealt a blow and people are beginning to wander away from him. Some people do believe that uh, chapter 38 of Psalm is, Psalms is where uh, Absalom starts a rebellion and David is ultimately exiled out of his own kingdom. And I can see little pieces of that here where maybe he feels that, that isolation and that desertion. What a painful thing. But let me point this out to you, that in the midst of his being deserted and his isolation, look at what you see in verse 9. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. What a sweet thing to one who feels isolated and deserted. That even here you begin to see his heart begin to bend back toward God. 
that, that as all of his friends, his family members are standing far from him, he remembers, oh Lord, all my longing is before you. There's not a moment of my day that's not before you. You're always with me. You will never leave me or forsake me. Even when I sin and rebel against you, I know that my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. And you know what sighing is. It's that silent language where we communicate something that's just a little too deep for words. We're in pain, we're in agony, and it's just that deep sigh. I, I laugh because I, my mother knows my sighs. Whenever I, whatever, whatever it may be, she knows exactly what it is. In the exact same way, when I read this and I hear my sighing is not hidden from you, still David is having this, this moment where he's remembering that although he sinned against God, he's rebelled against him, he has been a fool. God is still present with David. He still loves him and he still is, 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 will never leave him and forsake. And I just love the fact that as David is considering the fact that all have forsaken him in the midst of his sin, ultimately God is still present. God is still present. His promises are still true. And I wonder if David even considered the, when he, the kings would write out the Old Testament books of the Bible, particularly the first five. And I wonder how many times he wrote, I will never leave you or forsake you as he wrote that out. And as he's sitting here pinning this, he was reminded, man, I know that my God will never leave me or forsake me even in my sin. And what a beautiful thing it is that although his friends and family have deserted him, he's reminded once again, my sweet king will never leave me. And then continuing, you see this in verse 12. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. This is the harshest truth to me of God's discipline. Often he will use our enemies to do it. It's a painful one for me. You think of Israel and Judah as they rebelled against God. They were taken into captivity. Ultimately, God used an enemy of the nation to bring them into captivity, to remind them of how they had rebelled against God, to remind them of how they have completely forsaken his law. It's a, it's a painful blow. I can't imagine David being king, loved by so many. Absolutely, he had enemies, though, and God giving them an opportunity to strike David even. And, and I mean, I imagine Israel even, as they're taken into captivity by Babylon, they would say, you would use our enemies to strike us? And once again, you consider David, I mean, God's chosen nation, Israel, the one that he had set his affection on, the one that he promised the Messiah would come through. Even them, they were not exempt from their rebellion against God. There are consequences for them. But why does he strike them? Why is he willing to inflict a, a physical blow? Why is he willing to allow us to go through periods of desertion when we have sinned and rebelled against him? Why would he even use our enemies to strike us? Ultimately, it comes down to one major thing. God loves his children. I mean, when I, when I read this, and I mean, I'll be honest, there's some passages that you're just, you get and you're like, man, I'm so excited to preach this passage. Preaching on discipline is a difficult one because, friends, we don't even like it. It's not something we enjoyed. I didn't expect a bunch of amens when I said God would be willing to strike a festering blow on you. But how sweet it is that we have a God that's willing to do that. Parents who don't discipline their children do they love them? Do they really desire for them to grow into mature men and women who follow passionately after the Lord? I would argue very, very clearly that they just don't. 
See, the deepest love is willing to inflict a blow for the sake of growing them into maturity, growing them into faithfulness. And so as we consider the discipline that God has for us, let's remember what we have in Hebrews chapter 12. And I want to, we'll, we'll jump back into Psalm chapter 38 in just a moment. But Hebrews chapter 12, looking back at it, verse 10, says, For they disciplined us for a short time, our earthly fathers, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplined us for our good. So let's look back considering just that thing that he disciplined us for our good. And let's consider, can we look at all the things that God has done directly to David due to his sin, due to his iniquity that he committed and his foolishness? Can we say that due to that, God dealt with David in a good manner? And the ultimate answer is absolutely. And here's why. Let's look at this. Starting in verse 15. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. Now, as you read this psalm and you consider all the things that God has done to David to discipline him, this would not be a verse that you would expect to see. You would not expect to see verse 15, but for you, O Lord, do I wait. Look, all throughout there, there's, there's a story of the nation, one of the nations of Israel, one of the tribes, Ephraim. Ephraim, every time Israel was stuck, they would, struck, they would run back to Egypt. They would flee from the Lord ultimately, while the remainder of the tribe kind of took their punishment and then fell back into favor with God. Ephraim would flee back to Egypt and ultimately time and time again, they were met with destruction. But what you see here is David refusing to repeat that process that I know I've been dealt a blow, but in you, O Lord, do I wait? For you, I'm waiting. Why? Why is David waiting for his God who has dealt this blow? Because David knows the intent and the sweet kindness of God. What's the purpose of God striking? It's to bring him to repentance and ultimately bring about God's purpose for David's life. And, and I think about the times that I was disciplined as a child. I will never forget. I um, decided I'd get a ride home from the movies and not tell my parents. Um, and a, and, a, and, a, and a, a parent that's scared spanks harder. You know what I'm talking about? Um, and, and I remember being in so much trouble. My dad spanked me, but not five seconds later, I was, sitting, um, I was sitting with him eating a bowl of ice cream, and we were just laughing and enjoying each other's fellowship. How frequently does that happen? How often have you spanked a child or disciplined them, and, and you find really quickly they're back in your arms, and you're just enjoying the, the relationship of father and son or mother and daughter or what have you? You see, the intent here is that ultimately God's purpose is not just bringing David to a place of deeper sanctification. It's also bringing him to a place of deeper intimacy with him. My dad and I even laughed this, while we were in Colorado about the times that I had did just ridiculous things and he would spank me and discipline me. I, I spent a moment thanking him because I have a younger brother that's doing the exact same things right now. Man, and I, and I have a good and, and deep relationship with my father because he was willing to do some difficult things and cause me some pain from time to time so that ultimately I would be conformed to the image of Jesus by the goodness of my father. And let me tell you, my dad is great, but he is in no way contrasted with the great God and king we have. He has done difficult things to me from time to time. But praise be to God, he always has a good intent. His intent is not simply to remove sin from my life from time to time. His intent is to draw me into a deeper and more intimate relationship with himself. So let's look at how David responds. First, we see him say, But for you, O Lord, do I wait? It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. And then jumping down to verse 17, this is the sweet portion of this. 
for I am ready to fall and my pain is ever before me. I mean, you almost get the feeling that right now, David, he's at his limit. He can't take anything more. I'm ready to fall. I've hit my limit. The pain is just too much for me. And immediately you see this, I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. Man, how good is it that when God disciplines believers, and I make this claim and I do so boldly, that believers repent of their sin. And I mean that unilaterally. It may take some difficult times. It may mean that God has to use some harsher forms of discipline. But ultimately, when believers are confronted with their sin, they repent and place their faith in Christ. It is a mark of the believer. It is a mark of the believer. Friends, if you live in a prolonged state of sin and rebellion against God, and you neither feel his discipline nor do you repent, maybe the question is, am I truly in relationship with Christ? Because he will not suffer you to rebel against him long because he loves you and he desires to intimately have fellowship with you day in and day out. His desire is that you would be conformed to the image of Jesus and enjoy him forever. Why in the world would he allow you to live in a state of sin without him seeking you out? And God's discipline is one of the greatest moments where you can say with absolute confidence, I am in Christ. I am in Christ. When you feel that hand weigh heavy on you, when you feel those arrows sink in, praise be to God, I'm in Christ. He's disciplining me as a child. And so you see this repentance take place. And I love this repentance because I've been here. How many times have you been at a place where you felt like, I mean, this sin was, it was eating you alive. And perhaps God at that moment struck you in a unique way and brought you to a place where you fell on your knees before him and gave up everything. He ripped it away from you. How sweet is it when God rips idols away from men? Oh, it's painful. My senior year of high school, I was playing the semifinals match of um, tennis. I was about to get a state championship. I thought I was living the dream. Um, and uh, I mean, I had, uh, a, I was dating a girl that I thought was the one, praise the Lord Jesus, she was not. Um, and I mean, I, I just really thought I had it all. And in a day, a, just day, Lost that tennis match. I, was, I mean, it was just, I mean, it was God yanking away an idol from me. And then on the ride home, um, this girl broke up with me. I mean, it's just like God was taking an ax to everything. But he was taking an ax to all of these things that I had set up as idols and I was bowing before and worshiping. And when God rips an idol away from people, it's painful and it's difficult. But ultimately his purpose is that you might celebrate something that is eternal and doesn't ever change. Because I was going through so much strife and so much pain worshiping these idols because they were fickle, they, they burned. And ultimately when Christ yanked them away from me, I was met with such great joy knowing that I have a God and King that never changed. And that he is one who would seek after me. And so we see this. We see repentance and faith from David. He looks, I confess my iniquity. I'm sorry for my sin. But that's not the last thing we see here. In verse 21, look. Do not forsake me, O Lord, O my God. Be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord of my salvation. Do you think that Christ tasted sweeter to David after this? I mean, I I can think of ample times where I have sinned and rebelled against God and I get that taste in my mouth almost of sin. And I think it's so sweet. You know, there's some sin that we have wrapped ourselves up in and you enjoy it for a period of time. And when God yanks it away, you realize that after you taste the grace and mercy of Christ, that everything that you just experienced was simply bitter. 
because you've ne- because enjoying what Christ has accomplished for you and, in, and enjoying the fact that he has pursued you and grace is met in every sin and rebellion. And although he may strike you from love, ultimately his purpose is, is good for you that when you begin to taste the sweetness of Christ, all the sin that you have previously enjoyed looks like dirt. And do you know what I find most interesting about this passage? David wrote this not even in the full light of the New Testament. David had glimpses, he had bits and pieces of the gospel. He was given promises knowing that the Messiah would come through his line. He knew that he would sit on his throne forever, but he did not completely know of the great Christ that would come. And when I look at this passage and I consider things like, I mean, look at this. For your arrows have sunk into me, your hand has come down on me. Later on you see this really interesting passage in verse 13. It says, but I am like a deaf man. I do not hear like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear and whose mouth are no rebukes. And then you look down and he talks about his enemies not uh, being victorious. And when I look at this, I consider that as David writes, I think that he is looking and even catching glimpses of the Christ in this picture. That there would be one who, whose wounds would indeed be inflicted, that he would stand before a judge silent, and that ultimately all of his guilt, all of his pain, all of his suffering due to his sin, that although David had a bit of a taste of it, and he was guilty and he deserved it, that there would be one who would taste far greater guilt. He would bear it in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And so, friends, when I consider the fact that I have um, been disciplined, I consider it in light of the cross, knowing that there has been one who has tasted such wrath that I will never taste because he has drank this cup to the dregs. And I think the only reason that God has wrath on me today is not because because, uh, I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, although that be the case. My sin's been paid for in full at the cross of Christ. And it's not because he's angry with me because I possess the righteousness of Christ. It's been given to me. It's been imputed to my account. So when God sees me, he sees Christ. The only purpose that God ever inflicts wounds on saints is to conform them into the image of Jesus. And so anytime we go through difficult times, tribulations, or sufferings, we rejoice knowing that we as legitimate children, God is actively working in our lives to make us righteous and stand before him holy and blameless. Isn't that a sweet thing for the believer? That when suffering comes, we rejoice. We rejoice. Because it's not, it's not because he's angry, no. He loves us as dearly loved children. It's because he has a purpose for us. He desires us to be conformed to the image of Christ. It is a promise that he has guaranteed for us. Romans chapter, 28, Romans chapter 8, verse 28 and 29. Romans chapter 28, 28 is one of those verses that everyone knows. Uh, for God works together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Isn't that a good verse? I love verse 29, though. I, to me, it just kind of brings it all around. That those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. What's the good that God desires for you? conformity to Christ. And in every situation, whether that be the best of times in your life where you are walking faithfully with God, that you just feel as though sin can't touch you, it's been put to death by the Spirit, and all is well, and you're walking faithfully with Him, His desire is to conform you into the image of Jesus. And when all is awry in your life, when you have sinned, when you have committed the sin of idolatry and you've bowed your face before things this world has to offer and you realize in those times that it has nothing on Christ and he comes in, he yanks them away from you and it may be painful. His purposes are the same. His purposes are always the same to conform you into the image of Christ. And so sweet friends, my prayer for you is this. 
uh, at, at the beginning of this chapter, you hear David say, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. I, I have to wonder, as David was brought out of the sin, as he experienced the sanctification that took place through it, I wonder if he would go back and pen, rebuke me in your anger, discipline me in your wrath. And friends, I'm convinced that we as believers in Christ should maybe make this a prayer from time to time. Lord, if there be any wicked way within me, if I have sinned and rebelled against you, if there is some idol that I have set up for me, rebuke me in your anger. Discipline me in your wrath. Make it clear to me that I am your child. Make it clear to me that I am your child and bring about your purposes in my life. And so, sweet friends, my, my thought and my prayer as I prepared this was, Lord, is there anything in me that I need to be rebuked for? Is there any discipline that you need to carry out on your servant, on your son? And so my prayer for you is that maybe you would be so bold to pray the same. Ask the Lord, seek him, and, and pray a very crazy prayer. Lord, rebuke me in your anger. If there be sin in me, kill it. And Lord, let me taste how sweet you are in comparison.